welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We live in a noisy time, and it can be hard to sort the believable from the unbelievable. It's a problem that we've wrestled with in various forms forever. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Exodus with this sermon entitled The Fight to Believe God, which covers Exodus chapter 3, verse 16 to chapter 5, verse 23. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Excited. I'm excited about where we're going this morning in the book of Exodus. Uh, hopefully so far in these first two weeks you've been blessed. Uh, I think God's going to meet us in a significant way this morning as well. Let me pray to that end and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Thank you for uh, that the truth that your word is, is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing between both joint and marrow, meaning that you pierce deep into our hearts with, with the truth of your word, with the grace of your word. So this morning, would you do that? Would you give us soft hearts to be recipients, glad recipients of, of what you have for us? This morning, would you give us ears to hear? And Father, would you do it all for your glory? We pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't, I don't think I need to tell you this, um, but I was excited yesterday because SEC football came back. It's a big deal. Some are clapping. Some are like, you can't clap for football in church. Please don't do that. It was a big deal. It was a big deal in our house. We watched a lot of football yesterday. Uh, ACC's been doing it for a little while. Big 10 and Pac-12, going to catch up. But it's fun. It's a fun hobby. I was thinking about those games yesterday, and I was thinking about um, what it's like for an underdog to go into a game. Maybe you're not a sports person. Maybe you hate this analogy already. Um, but... An underdog is someone who goes into a game expecting to lose. Now, maybe not necessarily the team is expecting to lose, but everybody else is. Everybody else is going, you're not going to win that game. And even the team perhaps says, hey, we're going to give it all we got. We're going to play our hardest. But deep down, even though coaches and players would never admit it, they're thinking, yeah, we, we, don't, we don't stand a chance. So I got to thinking yesterday, Georgia's not my team, but I live in Georgia. So I pull for Georgia whenever they're not playing my team. And um, so I'm, I'm watching the Georgia game and, I started thinking about what was Arkansas's mindset coming into that game? And I think it was a progression. Here's here's what I think. I think Arkansas came into that game thinking, we don't have a chance. We're not going to win. Nobody expects us to win this game. There was unbelief. That's what we'll call it that. We'll say that they had great unbelief. But halftime happens. Maybe they've got a little more belief. Maybe they're going, wow, there is something here. Maybe we can pull this out. So they go from unbelief to some level of belief. And then the third quarter happens. And every smidgen of belief that they had is dashed against the rocks. And they go from unbelief to some level of belief to just sheer disbelief. Why did we ever believe we could win this game? Why do we get our hopes up? And if you're an Arkansas fan, I'm sorry. You really hate this analogy. But there's that progression 
of, of the underdog, of, from unbelief to belief to disbelief. Belief is at the core of Christianity. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. That's, that's certainly true. We, one of the first verses, if you grew up in or around church, that you memorized, if not the first, was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Belief is at the core of our faith. But have you ever found it hard to believe? I just said, you know what, That's, it's, just, it's just hard sometimes. You know, I even think about the song that we started with this morning, the first lyric, the first line of the song that we sang this morning, first song. God, you make it easy to love you. Now, I think that's a good lyric. I, I think that's true a lot of times. Certainly that, that song is speaking to the reality that God has been uh, immensely gracious with us. He's been kind beyond measure, measure to give us redemption through Jesus. And so when we consider the gospel, yes, it is easy to love you, O oh God. But there's a lot of other times in life that if we're honest, if we just go, can I, can I be honest? Can I be, can I be real with you? It's hard to believe. And the, and the circumstances of our life and the feelings, the emotions that we experience would actually be, if I'm going to sing that line, it's going to be, God, you make it hard to love you. It can be a struggle. You know, unbelief is at the core of the human experience, unbelief and disbelief. And I'll differ differentiate between the two later of what I mean by that. But unbelief and disbelief are at the core of, of the human struggle. The human soul, it's common that we would deal with this. Certainly true for those who find Christianity to just be, simply be unbelievable. They just can't believe in it for various reasons. But even for the Christian, even for the person, those of us who have believed upon Christ, we can find ourselves in this place kind of like the father of the son that Jesus healed who had an unclean spirit. And the father says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And, and I, I have found myself to be that father so many times in my life where I'm saying, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's unbelief that's taking the, uh, the driver's seat right now more than belief in my life. We have those seasons. We have those moments, sometimes short, sometimes long. Part of what's happening in the Exodus narrative, part of what God is doing is, is he's drawing us into the reality of the human struggle as we encounter a God who is at some level incomprehensible, at many levels incomprehensible. We'll see that in the text today. But at the same time, knowable. Bob talked about this last week, the incompre incomprehensibility of God, the, 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 the fact that God is in so many ways uh, indescribable. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around who God is. Even in the name of God from last week, there's, there's really no definition. It's just that I am who I am. And even God himself owes us no explanation. He's God. And so as we encounter this, uh, this, this God who is in so many ways incomprehensible, yet at the same time revealing himself to us to know him, we struggle. We find ourselves in this seesaw of belief and unbelief. As we progress through the story of Exodus, we're going to watch we're going to watch the Israelites, God's people. We're going to watch them struggle mightily with this. Where one moment they're believing, the next moment they're disbelieving. All kinds of things 
factoring into why that's the case. But as we watch them more and more, hopefully we're going to see, wow, that's me. That's me. I find myself in that same struggle. Here's the main point of this morning and really the main point of this week and next week as we walk through chapters three, four, five, and six over the next two Sundays. Here's the main point. For a people who are given to unbelief and disbelief, there is a sovereign promise-keeping God who never forgets his covenant, never, and always, always, always proves himself to be faithful. What a great, great word of comfort and hope for a people like you and me who struggle with unbelief and disbelief. Let's look at the text. Let's see where this comes out in these chapters from the book of Exodus. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to pick up this week where Bob left off last week. Bob primarily led us through uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, and led us through the, the famous account. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've heard about this whole Moses in the burning bush story. And, and it's a fascinating story. It's one that grips us because you have this man who used to be a prince of Egypt who was raised in, in the king's palace and for all practical purposes was going to be an heir to the throne and yet understanding a little bit as he gets older that at some level he's the deliverer. These are my people, the Hebrews, who are enslaved to the Egyptians. And though I was raised Egyptian, I'm a Hebrew. And so he began to feel a little bit of this uh, of this onus upon himself to be the deliverer. Maybe he knew, maybe God had revealed that to him at some level, maybe not, we don't know. But at the age of 40, he goes out into the desert and he sees the uh, uh, Egyptian taskmaster uh, brutally beating a Hebrew slave and he takes justice into his own hands and he kills this Egyptian and he buries him in the sand and then he realizes that he's been seen and that the king himself is after him to kill him. And so he flees, and he flees to the Sinai Peninsula, what we know it as today, and, and he flees, uh, flees to this place called Midian. And he ends up marrying this woman named Zipporah, who was not uh, a believer. She's not in Hebrew. She's a pagan, but God leads him to her, and they establish a family there in the, in the hillsides of the Sinai Peninsula there in, Mid, in Midian, and, and he's content. He does not want to go back to Egypt. He is content spending the rest of his life as a sheep herder on those hills there. So he's 80. He's 80, and as we heard last week, he's just out doing what he does. He's a shepherd, and he's tending to his flock. And he notices this burning bush over here, and he's curious and intrigued about it. And so he goes to the bush because he, as he gets closer, he realizes it's not being consumed. And as he stands there, a, a voice comes out of the bush. Can you imagine <laughs> how terrifying? And the voice says, you're on holy ground, take your sandals off. And he realizes that he's talking to the God of his people. And God reveals his name to him. I am who I am, Yahweh. If you missed last week's sermon, go back and hear how Bob unpacked for us, the significance of that name and what God is doing in revealing this name of God that he had not done 
thus far. He had not revealed himself to be Yahweh, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. Now Moses is now understanding more about who this God is as he reveals more and more of himself. And he says, I want you to go back and I want you to be the one that brings your people out of Egypt. So we'll pick up in verse 16 where it says, where God says, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to, to me saying, I have observed you and what he has done to you in Egypt or what has been done to you in Egypt. Now look at verse 17. God makes some promises here. We have to notice that first, that God is giving very clear, no mincing words to the point promises. There is nothing here that would ever cause Moses to go, I'm not real sure what you're saying there, God. It's very to the point. And this is what he says. He says, verse 17, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. I promise it. And then if you skip down to verse 18, he says, and this is another promise of God, and they will listen to your voice. And then if that weren't enough, he gives one more promise. It's at the end of chapter 3, right there at the end of verse 22, where he says, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So in other words, I'm going to deliver them through you. They will listen to your voice. And not only will you get to go free, all the Hebrews, but you'll take a bunch of riches with you. Unbelievable promises of God here. Now, I want you to put yourself in the, in the story. I want you to put, you, put yourself there in the context. And, and imagine you're Moses. Don't let this be lost on you, okay? Moses is hearing the voice of God audibly, okay? This is not like how we hear the voice of God today to where as we're praying, we get a sense of God's spirit attesting to our spirit and our conscience with his, and we have this peace of knowing this is what God wants me to do. No, it's an audible voice from God speaking clear as day. And if that weren't enough, it's, it's through a bush that's burning and the bush is not burning up. Like crazy town, okay? Like we would look at that and just be like, what is happening? And I'm sure Moses was thinking that, but because we all think more highly of ourselves than we, than we ought, I think that if I were Moses, that would be enough for me. I think I'd be like, okay. I mean, the God of all creation, the immutable one, the incomprehensible one, the one who spoke creation into being, uh, he's speaking to me right now and he's telling me to go. And it's the whole bush thing. Okay, I'll, I'll go. But look at the next words out of Moses' mouth, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Wow. I don't even know what to make of what Moses is doing here. Like, I don't know if I should call it defiance. I don't know if I should call it ignorance, foolishness. I don't know. He just told you they will believe you and they will obey your voice. And Moses says, no, they won't. And you, you, there's a part of you and me, if you're like me, that goes, Moses, really? What are you doing? And then, and then hopefully the spirit speaking into your spirit, like it did mine as I was processing through this, of saying, oh, that, that's you. You're Moses. God is pressing on you all the times to go into places, to be the light in the darkness, to, to move into spaces that you don't want to move into. And what do you tell him? You say, yeah, I'm not doing that. And he says, I, I want you to 
to know that I'm going to go before you and I'm going to, I'm going to change the hearts of people that I'm calling you towards. And I've called you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I even told you after I gave you that command, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. And we go, yeah, no, you're not. It doesn't feel like it. That's scary. I'm not doing that. Do you know all the things I can't do, God? Are you aware with all the inabilities that I have? God, you remember that thing that happened those many years ago in my life? You remember that? Yeah, that ruined me. That ruined me, God, from me ever thinking that you're really for me and from me ever thinking that you can ever really use me for the task that you've called me to. So, yeah, if you'd have done something differently back there, I might be more prone to go now. That's Moses. I think a big part of what's happening here is Moses is saying, you want to send me back to that place where that awful thing happened 40 years ago? I can't get the thought of, out of my head of the blood pouring out of the guy's head that I killed and, the, and the, the way in which I buried him and the way in which I looked around to make sure no one was looking and the way in which I tried to hide it. And then the king himself wanted to kill me and now you want me to go back there where that atrocity happened? Yeah, no, that ain't happening. And then we go, that's me. We often let the struggles of our past dictate whether or not we move in the promises of God now. If that weren't enough, God says, very patient and kind. God's response, he doesn't rebuke Moses. He says, hey, that staff you're holding, throw it on the ground. He does, it turns into a serpent. (laughs) Freak out time if you're Moses. He just won up to the burning bush. Then he says, oh, by the way, you see your hand here, stick it in your cloak. Sticks it in, he pulls it out, it's leprous. Another freak out moment. Says, put it back in your cloak, puts it in, takes it out. It's healed again, it's normal. Again, more and more that you would think would cause Moses to go, okay, wow. This is God and I'll go. But then after that happens, look at verse 10. He says, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Again, do you know all the things I can't do, God, that would qualify me for this position that you're calling me to? And God very graciously responds yet again and says, Moses, who's the one who makes the mouth and makes people deaf or blind or able to speak. Is it not I, the Lord? I got you. And then Moses just in utter, utter defeatedness and fear and insecurity, he says in verse 13, oh Lord, my God, please send someone else. (laughs) He's just, it's like, I'm out of excuses you keep pressing on me, Lord, but just, just please leave me alone. I don't want to go. And it says the anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses, so God's getting to that point. But even still, he's gracious. He says, okay, fine. Uh, your, your brother Aaron, he can speak well. Now you have no excuse. Get Aaron, get your staff, go. Now, second part of the story, we're getting towards halftime of the game where the underdog Moses is starting to get just a little inkling of belief. We don't, it's in between uh, the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 because the beginning of chapter 4, he starts to obey. He, he does get there. 
Even though I think he's getting there with all kinds of crippling insecurities, he's still getting there because it says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see if they're still alive. So he's obeying, and God's giving, in his obedience, God's giving more and more instructions of what you're to do and where you're, when you're supposed to go to Pharaoh and what you're to say. And he tells him, he says, look, just so you know, now Moses is going to forget this pretty soon, but he says, just so you know, I'm going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. He's not going to listen to you. He's not going to let your people go. But he gets there. Now, just so is, I want you to read through chapter four on your own. I'm going to give you a heads up on something, okay? You're going to get to verses 24 of 26 of Exodus chapter four, and you're going you're gonna to read it you're going to look up at the ceiling of your house or wherever you're reading, and you're going to look in befuddlement as to what you just read. You're going to go, what in the world did I just read? Those three verses in Exodus chapter 4, some of the most hotly debated and discussed verses among scholars. Here's, I'll give you a hint because I'm seeing some of you go, what is it? I'm not even listening to him now. What's, what's he talking about? I'll just go ahead and tell you a little blip of what happens. So he goes, God gives him his instructions, and then on his way going to Egypt, God says, I'm going to kill you, Moses. <laughs> Y'all didn't think that as funny as I did. Like, that's, you're like, what? Why would you appear in a burning bush? Why would you do all the stuff with the staff and the, and the hand with the leprosy and do all this and press and press and press and then say, okay, you're on your way, I'm going to kill you. This is part of the incomprehensibility of God. This is part of the part that, that we just go, I don't get God. He's mysterious. There's things that he does. His thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our, our ways. What is he up to? Well, in the little bit that we can comprehend of what God's doing here in our finite human brains, this is a part of what's going on. It's reminding us that God is a God who takes his covenant seriously. And he's a God who takes the covenant sign very seriously. Now, because Moses uh, was raising his kids in Midian, his kids, his sons, were not circumcised. And that's the sign of the covenant that God had given in Genesis. And God's serious about that. So now he's now God's chosen one heading back to the land of Egypt to be the one through whom God redeems his people. And his sons aren't circumcised. They are not, have not received the sign of the covenant. And God takes issue with that. He's going to kill Moses over it. We don't fully get that. But interestingly, Zipporah, his wife, who's not a Hebrew, intervenes, steps in between God and Moses, and circumcises their son and saves Moses. It is so confusing. But I think it speaks to who God is. He's a God who remembers his covenant, and he takes his covenant seriously. And he takes the sign of the covenant seriously. The sign of the covenant in the New Testament is baptism. Different sermon for a different day. Then you get back to 27, and all of a sudden, we're just back in the story. It's like, okay, here we go. They're on their way again. And he says, Aaron, go find Moses and go tell the people what I want you to tell them. So they go tell the people, and look what happens. Look what happens at the end of chapter 4, verse 31. And it says, and the people believed. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. This is Arkansas at halftime. There's belief now. There's, okay, he's seen us. We might actually get to go free. We might actually pull this out, or we can't pull this out. Maybe, maybe he'll pull this out. 
Part of what we see continually in the story of Exodus is that God's people are completely powerless to do anything for themselves, which is a beautiful picture of what is to come with us in Jesus as well. He has to do all the work in the midst of our unbelief and disbelief. So they're believing. They're excited. It's happening. 400 years of slavery, but we're getting to go free. This is great. Then chapter 5 happens. And what we're going to see in chapter 5 is total heartbreak. Because Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and it says in chapter two, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, they go to Moses and Aaron, and they say, God wants, God's spoken to us, you've got to let the people go. And this is what he says in verse 2. The Pharaoh, king of Egypt, said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know. I do not know the Lord. I don't know Yahweh. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. I like, again, try to do this with me. Put yourself in the story. You're standing there. You're Moses and Aaron, and, and everything just stopped. The record player screeched to a halt because you were totally expecting him to go, okay. And he says, No. And I can kind of see Aaron and Moses looking at each other being like, uh, he wasn't supposed to say that. What do we do now? And then Pharaoh turns it up a notch. He says, not only am I not going to let you go, but I am going to increase the bitterness, the heaviness on the head of your people. He says in verse 7, you shall no longer give, he's talking to his taskmasters, the the ones over the slaves. He says, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let, Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Uh, Think about what Pharaoh's doing here. He's mocking them. He's calling them crybabies. He's saying, you're a bunch of whiners. And he's, he's, the mocking here, like, this is a real personality. This is a real person. He doesn't say this just flatline monotone. He's He's got personality with it. So when I read this, I hear Pharaoh saying, therefore they cry, let us go and make a sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. Like, if that's the way you're gonna be, Hebrews, watch this. I'll show my power. And he turns up, he turns the notch up on them to where by the end of chapter five, even Moses himself is in total disbelief. He's moved from unbelief to some level of belief to disbelief. Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name He has done, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses went from unbelief, which is I don't want to go, I don't want to believe in what you're telling me, all the way to disbelief, which is I can't believe. I just can't. I can't believe you did that, God. I thought you were going to do what you said you were going to do. And the people are right there with him. It says that the people are telling Moses and Aaron, God's judgment be upon you. You ever notice that often in life, following the voice of the Lord makes life harder? 
especially circumstantially. We've slowly but surely, and when I say we, I mean the Western church, we have slowly but surely and sometimes very blatantly allowed ourselves to believe a theology that if we have enough faith, if we believe deep enough, that everything gets better circumstantially. But that's not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture time and time again is that the more we follow the voice of the Lord, in fact, the harder things often get. Because the better is not in better circumstances. The better is Him. And it's often in the uh, stripping away of the chaff of the things that we want to hope in instead of God himself. It's in that that we understand, appreciate, love, and adore him all the more and understand and believe that he is enough. Sometimes what God does is he brings even more brokenness so that we might be even more dependent. You go, was 400 years of slavery for the Hebrew people not enough to break them? Apparently not. God was bringing even more into their lives so that they would see at the most base levels that all they ultimately need, even more than deliverance itself, is God himself. That he is the treasure. Two things I want us to chew on this morning. First one is this. If our trust in God is centered on our perception of whether things are working out or not, we will wade We will wait in the shallows of belief, but we will swim in the deep of unbelief and disbelief. If our hope and trust in God is centered on our perception of whether things are working out, that's where we'll be. We'll believe from time to time, but it'll be very shallow, no depth. Where we'll we'll swim, where we'll just soak it up is in this place of disillusioned disbelief and unbelief. For those who things are not working out well for. They perceive that nothing's working out well in my life. For those, the temptation is to hope and improve circumstances. So we long for, oh, just make things better, oh God. For those where things are working out well, then the temptation is to continue to hope in those things. So for the one who is lacking circumstantially, listen, don't miss this. For the one who is lacking circumstantially, struggling circumstantially, the question must become, is God and his promises enough even if he never gives me what I long for circumstantially? And for the one who's not lacking, the question must become, is God and his promises enough if he were to take all this away? Is he enough? The second thing out of that is that I want you to chew on is our, if our trust in God is centered on the promises of God, we will wade in the shallows of unbelief and disbelief, but we will swim in the deep of belief. Perception or promises? Good circumstances or God? Where are we living? What are we hoping in? Two quick, brief items of application. First one is this, and I said this two weeks ago, I'm gonna keep pressing it in. 
Fight to believe that God is at work. Fight to believe that God is at work. Two weeks ago, we, we saw in the beginning of the story of Moses, we saw that God is at work, and he's at work in the, he's at work in the silence, he's at work in the bitterness, he's at work in the reeds, and he's at work in our failures. God is at work. But here's the thing I want to press in secondly. What is that work? It's one thing to say God is at work and gain some little glimmer of hope in that. But, but what is the work? What is it that he's doing? So the second thing is fight to believe that he's doing a work of redemption. That he is doing a work of redemption in everything that he brings into our lives. Everything. When I was on staff with, with crew back in 2004, five, I was on staff with crew for 13 years, but those few years from 04 to 08, I was on staff at Georgia, University of Georgia. One of the guys that I was able to lead to faith uh, during that time, uh, became, I became very close to him. He began dating this, this great young gal and they fell in love in college, and then as soon as they graduated, they got married. I had the joy and privilege of officiating their, their wedding back in 2010. They tried to get pregnant for several years and were not able to do so. And then finally, they get the great news that, that they're pregnant. They not only are pregnant, they're pregnant with twins. And they're rejoicing and celebrating. And so uh, these beautiful two baby twin girls are born. And they're rejoicing in all the ways that parents do. But a few months into these little girls' lives, they started recognizing that things weren't happening that should be happening in terms of their development. And over the course of about two years, they finally get a diagnosis took forever to figure out what was going on. And they finally figure out through many, many, many doctor's appointments and tests and scans and all the like that these two precious girls have a extremely rare genetic disease. And not only that, not only will they not develop the way that they're supposed to, but within a few years, they would both pass away. Sure enough, last year, Bailey Grace Sweet little Bailey Grace passed into the arms of Jesus. Her twin sister, Allie, is still hanging on, but as of last month is beginning to start that process as well. Hugh and Morgan, these little girls' parents that I know so well and love so deeply, they have been unbelievable through this. Not because they're great, but because they're God whom they walk with is great. Morgan posted this this past Monday, six days ago. She said, Allie had a very hard day today. Grieving while grieving some more honestly feels like my heart is going to ache out of my chest. I hate watching her suffer. And I equally hate the reality that the suffering produces a very real PTSD response in me that sadly isn't even irrational. I'm the seeing God in all things and longing for you to do the same, girl. And I'm tired of fighting for the beauty. I've never known a battle so chronic. I've never experienced a weary so weary. Yet somehow, 
by the grace of God, I, I just know that he's doing something. I trust the unseen is what I'm after. And in the middle of it all, I'm choosing to look for glimpses of heaven in the midst of what sometimes feels like hell. Because he is good and he is working. Even when I have absolutely no idea of how, of the hows or whys or what's, I know the who. And that mustard seed of faith is what presses me on. Yes, at all times. Yes, in all things. And yes, no matter what. If you want a good follow on Instagram, follow Morgan at Seeds and Leaven. Her posts are incredible. What's Morgan doing here? She's fighting. She's fighting to believe. She's fighting to believe that there is indeed a God who does what he says he's going to do, who will do what he has said he will do. She's fighting to believe that the death and the decay that she sees enveloping the bodies of her precious little girls has been defeated once and for all through the finished work of Jesus on the cross where he annihilated death through his resurrection. She's fighting to believe that there is a day coming where all things will be made new. She's, she's fighting to fix her eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of her faith, who tells her time and time again that I'm, not only am I this powerful, magnificent God, but I am your intimate, near, caring shepherd who in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. She is fighting to believe that in every circumstance, in every situation, in every part of life that screams at us that God is not work, at work, she's fighting to believe that he is. And she's fighting to believe in the promises of God of what will come despite what my circumstances scream at me today. And did you catch which verse in particular which passage she's clinging to with all of her might. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, we do not lose heart for outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for these light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. She's fighting for the unseen. She's fighting to say there is a God that even though he says, I'm not going to give you any more straw and you still have to make this many bricks, he's saying, I'm with you and I'm up to something and I'm a God who has not and will not ever forget my covenant with you and I will prove myself to be faithful. If not in this life, you will certainly experience my faithfulness in the next. Will you believe That's the story of Exodus. For a people so very prone to unbelief and disbelief, there is a God, sovereign and good, who though we don't understand why he gives us what he gives us circumstantially, he is at work redeeming a people unto himself. And there is a deliverance coming. And it's only through Jesus, the author and the perfecter 
of our faith. Do you remember how Hebrews chapter 11 ends? Towards the end of Hebrews 11? Circumstantially, Moses had everything at his fingertips. He had the treasures of Egypt right there. Right there. And Hebrews 11 says that he didn't consider the treasures of Egypt of any worth compared to the surpassing greatness of Christ. Oh God, would you make our hearts like Moses's in that way? Father, we, we are like Moses in our unbelief and in our disbelief. But would you do a work in us like you did in him to where we, we could say, that the treasures of this world and all that we long for in this life, whether it comes or whether it doesn't come, we have you. And you, oh Jesus, are of greater worth. Father, give us the ability to fight to believe that you're at work in everything, doing your work of redemption. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.